This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. Today on the program is Mackenzie Chin, whose story you will hear today, and then we'll be publishing a conversation with her about the curation process in the near future. So keep a lookout for that. Mackenzie's story is about violences, small and large, and how the external ones become internal apparitions. Second Story presents Mackenzie Chin. This is one occasion of many, more than I care to count. On this occasion, I am in an anthropology store trying on fragrances. In fact, I'm in the anthropology store right down the street from where we are right now, the one just off North Avenue. I probably won't buy any of the fragrances I'm trying on. I'll go into an anthropology even when I intend on buying absolutely nothing. I love anthropology. And because it has always been pathologically overpriced, it's often enough to just putter among the shelves of beautifully merchandised home goods and appreciate the stacks of colorfully embroidered quilts and frilly scarves and artful dishware that if I were to publish a novel or rob a bank, I could very easily afford. Even though I'm not buying anything, anthropology is a kind of happy place. The fragrances are arranged along a large freestanding wall. I stand, spraying each pretty bottle between the large wall and a great big floor-to-ceiling window that looks out into the parking lot. Where I am standing, I cannot be easily seen from the store's main floor. Now, I've got some time on my hands, so I've determined that this afternoon I will be trying on all of the fragrances available to me. So I'm there for a while. A sales associate appears from the other side of the wall, and I don't notice her much except that she is youngish, blonde, and fashionably dressed in the way that all sales associates here are fashionably dressed. I do notice, however, when she passes behind me to a nearby table stacked with sweaters, fluffs a couple of those sweaters, uh, glances briefly in my direction, then disappears beyond the wall back to the main floor. This is our whole interaction. I pause a moment, perfume bottle still in hand. It's moments like this that are hardest for me. It's moments like this that I think, yes, it's entirely possible that the pretty blonde sales associate needed very much to cross behind the wall where I am standing to fluff those sweaters. It's entirely possible that those sweaters needed very badly to be fluffed. It's moments like this that I also remember that I'm likely the only black woman in the store. And I remember that on this side of the wall, I can't be seen. And though I want to have this moment stand alone, speak for itself, and be unrelated to anything about the world or my identity, I can't help but remember any number of past occasions when footsteps have followed behind me in stores. Remember catching furtive glances in my direction. Remember feeling inexplicably criminal, guilty of no crime, and yet somehow guilty. These perfumes aren't as fun as they were a minute ago as I stand trying to decide if I should be offended, if the associate was just doing her job, or if she saw me and thought in her otherwise liberal and progressive mind, thought not even in an entirely conscious way, she doesn't belong. It's likely she's stealing. I stand recognizing the agonizing subtlety of the moment and feeling resentment at yet again the need to do this kind of psycho-racial mathematics, yet again this trying to decide if it's okay on this occasion to be the angry black lady 
or if I should shake it off like I usually do. I put down the stupid perfume. I cross from behind the wall back to the main floor. Women and bored husbands putter about the high cost of this place. Sales associates cheerfully assist them, swipe their credit cards, facilitate a positive customer experience. I watch everything being fine for them. I consider saying something. Instead, I just leave. This is another occasion of many, more than I care to count. On this occasion, I am a graduate student spending most of my days on campus in Lincoln Park. By now, I've grown familiar with the high cost of this place, both grad school and Lincoln Park, with its tree-lined mansion streets. On this occasion, I have rushed down to Armitage between classes to grab the cup of coffee that will fuel the second half of my day. I walk west back towards school when I pass a young man on the sidewalk. He is dressed innocuously enough, a backpack, sweater, and curly brown hair. He looks like a student. He is speaking into his cell phone, and as we pass, I hear him say into his phone, yeah, man, the place was just full of... On my page here is actually just a blank space because I discovered while workshopping this story that I don't like using the word that he used in mixed company. But by now, you've maybe figured out that the word he used is the N-word. And so you can hear it clearly in your imagination. I'll repeat it. He is speaking into his cell phone. And as we pass, I hear him say into the phone, yeah, man, that place was just full of. I'm less taken aback by his use of the word than by the ease and clarity with which he used it. Like it was just a regular, everyday kind of word and not a loaded shotgun of a word, a rope over tree branch and fire hose kind of word. I stop where I am and turn to look back at him as if by looking I could verify that I'd really heard what I just heard. His assured stride has not changed and if I spend any more time standing here in the wake of such a word, I'll be late for class. That evening, as I am leaving class, I walk north on Sheffield toward the train, and there is a moment as I go to cross Webster when my breath catches and I see the same man with curly hair whom I'd seen earlier on Armitage, who had used the N-word while passing me on his phone. At the same time that I see him, he sees me too and locks a fierce eye with mine, and as we pass, he raises his middle finger to me. His hand is inches from my face. It's moments like these in which everything becomes surreal and you wonder if you're living in the same reality as everyone else. The aggression of the moment feels like some kind of glitch in time and space. You look around to see if anyone else has seen what just happened, but no one has, and this makes you angry. You watch everyone going on their way and everything being fine for them, and you realize you are alone. You continue on your way because Really, that's the only thing you can do. And you wonder if every white face you pass is complicit. You become convinced that they are all thinking the N-word at you, but not saying it out loud. And even if it's not true, it doesn't matter because it might as well be. A week passes before I encounter him again. I am in a different neighborhood, Lakeview, walking north along Southport and its high-priced boutiques. Cars whiz by and it is a normal day until a car pulls to a stop sign and a man's voice shouts in my direction, look at that, an African monkey. 
there's another glitch in time and space as he speeds off, and I realize that this is the same man I'd encountered on campus. Again, no witnesses and no recourse. Again, anger and alienation, but this time also a pang of anxiety that in this place, maybe this is normal. Within the same month, I'd encounter him again in yet another neighborhood. On this occasion, I am walking with my boyfriend along a quaint stretch of shops in Lincoln Square. My boyfriend carries the box of cookies we'd bought from one of these shops. The sidewalk glows with street lamps. Other couples stroll hand in hand. They belong, and everything is fine. He's just a shadow, until suddenly he isn't. He appears just ahead of us with his upsettingly beautiful curly hair, and I somehow don't recall this occasion's insult. It's probably that he recycles African monkey, but it doesn't matter because I am now no longer capable of shock or even anger. On this occasion, more than anything, I am amused that in asserting my inferiority, he hasn't taken the time to at least get creative about it. I mean, there are just so many imaginative epithets, and I bet even you could think of at least three right now. My boyfriend, however, is not amused. He has thrown our box of cookies to the ground and taken off in pursuit of my harasser. Maybe it's my boyfriend's whiteness in a white neighborhood that allows him to feel safe in his pursuit, but I feel no such safety, and I call after him to stop, thinking this is how we become stories on the evening news that people hear, then shake their heads about how sad all of it is, then go back to everything being fine. The man has disappeared, our cookies are broken all over the ground, and I begin to wonder, after Lincoln Park, after Lakeview, and now Lincoln Square, if this is the culture so thinly beneath the surface of this whole north side, I wonder how many others who would likely never call such names, but who can hear them and keep on walking, understand the true nature of their own sidewalks. The last time I see him is back on campus. I've just left class, and I'm walking west on Webster. I see him at the same time he sees me, and as we cross paths, his face becomes steely, and again, he raises his middle finger to my face. By now, I've come to expect this. But in the same way that my capacity for shock is exhausted, now so too is my capacity for tolerance. Before I can think better of it, I turn and follow him. He glances over his shoulder and sees me. He quickens his pace, and so I quicken mine too. I pull out my phone. By now, I'd save the number for campus police and my contacts. I call them and keep up my pursuit. He walks faster, and I find his fear unreasonably satisfying. The woman from campus police answers. Hi, yes, my name is Mackenzie, the man who has been harassing black students on campus. By now, other students had encountered him and complained. He's harassing me again right now. He's walking east on Webster towards Sheffield. Can you send someone right now while I stay on the line? You said a man has been harassing you on campus? I am impatient with her need for clarification. Yes, I've called before. A white guy has been harassing black students on campus, and you guys said you couldn't do anything, but we should call back if he does it again. I say this loudly enough for the man I'm following to hear. On the phone, the woman from campus police says, Okay, what was your name again? I want to scream. Why doesn't she understand my urgency? Why isn't she working faster to stop him? Does she not understand that because of him, even when he's not there, I worry that he's there? And I worry about what he might be planning to do next. Does she not understand that I worry all the time now? That it is now normal for me to worry about the safety of my body and my friends' bodies in this place.
The man starts to legit run now, and so I run after him, and I can no longer hear or understand the woman on the phone, who is probably advising me not to chase him, but I don't care, because I've decided that the police are either not coming, or will be useless by the time they get here, or will get the story all wrong and apprehend me instead, because after all, I am the one currently in pursuit. The man ducks down an alleyway. I start to go after him, but I think better of it. He could be hiding behind some dumpster with a knife. And more than not wanting to die that way, I just don't want him to win. I tell the woman on the phone that I've lost him down an alleyway east of Sheffield. I tell her that I pay too much expletive money to go to this expletive school to be expletive terrorized. And if they don't expletive do something about it, maybe the Chicago Reader would like to do a feature about how DePaul is ignoring complaints from black students about racial harassment on its expletive campus. I hang up. I back away from the alley. And even though he's still out there, probably walking hatefully home, I feel some Small sense of victory. I mean, this guy is now ducking into alleyways. That's a thing he's doing in his life now. <laughs> now he is the one who is afraid. This is another occasion of many, more than I care to count. I stand in line at Whole Foods with a few items in my basket, waiting to check out. I am next in line, weighing the high cost of this place against my need for really fresh kale. A new register opens one lane over, but before I can take the few steps to cross towards it, a man with sandy brown hair steps in front of me and begins to lay his things on the checkout counter. It was as if I was invisible. On another day, I just stand there, angry and indignant and silent. But a surge inside me says, today is not that day. And I hear myself say in a loud voice aimed at him like an arrow, that was really rude. He turns to look at me, at first not realizing that, yes, these words are meant for him. His eyebrows rise, and he does sound genuine when he asks, when he looks at me and says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. I pause. I'm sure I'm looking at him quizzically as I try to decide if it's okay now to be nice and understanding and forgiving like I usually am. But before I can make up my mind, I hear myself assert, unassuaged, while well, I'm standing right here. Mackenzie's story was curated by Amanda Delheimer Diamond. She was directed by Lexi Saunders, and the sound design was by Mike Brisgoda. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.